the microbiota is the actual community of those microorganisms and the microbiome it's like the whole collections if you have a very sensitive intestinal lining your your nervous system is hypersensitive because our taste buds are constantly turning over we can reteach the sensitivity to certain types of flavors so there is these six different categories which actually are all providing us with a array of different fibers this new concept about plant diversity is really the new science that stemmed from our understanding about our gut microbiota welcome to the melanie avalon biohacking podcast where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health mindset longevity and so much more are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life this show is for you please keep in mind we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein are you ready let's do this welcome back to the melanie avalon biohacking podcast Friends, I so enjoyed today's conversation with Megan Rossi. I know a lot of people, especially in my community, in the keto sphere, in the carnivore sphere, can often get a fear of plants. And also, we can get overwhelmed with confusion about what to eat to support our gut in particular. That's why I so appreciated everything that we discussed today, all about the actual role of plants in our gut health. And what I loved about Megan is she was so down to dive deep, deep, deep into the science. We talk all about the gut micro biome and the concept of good versus bad bacteria, super cool things like horizontal gene transfer within the gut microbiome, what actually causes leaky gut, whether or not you actually need to go gluten-free. We talk about the role of grains on the gut, something that I personally have struggled with and I know a lot of my listeners have, which is SIBO, as well as, wait for it, a new definition of IBS. Yes, apparently I haven't been understanding what IBS actually is. We talk about how a lot of studies may not translate to humans. Of course, we talk about one of my favorite things, which is FODMAPs, and so much more. I cannot wait to hear what you guys think. Definitely check out the show notes for this one. They will have links to everything that we talked about, as well as a full transcript. Those will be at melanieavalon.com slash Megan Rossi, M-E-G-A-N-R-O-S-S-I. There will also be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram, find the Friday announcement post there, and again, comment to enter to win something that I love. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric, or focused on a certain type of person, and I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, Spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal Spirulina tablets on the market. 
ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S.? 
that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity. If you are using conventional skincare makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up and just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash clean beauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences. And I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a band of beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dr. Megan Rossi. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. So on this show, I love bringing on people of all different perspectives. And I know that a lot of my audience is dived deep into the paleo world and the keto world and even the carnivore world. So I get really excited when I get to bring on fantastic guests who are really big in the plant-based sphere. So when the people who represent Dr. Megan Rossi reached out to me, I was so excited. I was actually familiar with her work. I hadn't read her books, but I was familiar with her. I listened to her on some podcast interviews. So I was an immediate yes, super excited, dived into her two most recent books, which are Love Your Gut, as well as How to Eat More Plants, Transform Your Health with 30 Plant-Based Foods Per Week, and Why It's Easier Than You Think. And what I was really appreciative about and loved was that I love when I feel like the work is very comprehensive and open-minded and receptive to people of all dietary paradigms. So well, I'm sure we'll dive into this in the episode, but you're not going to read these books and walk away and think that you can 
only eat plants and can't have animal products or something like that. So it's very approachable. I loved the the science and the studies and I didn't get any sense of bias. It kind of reminded me of, I recently had actually Simon Hill on the show and I was talking to him last night because he's coming back on. So I mentioned that I was interviewing you today, Megan, and he said, hi. <laughs> I figured you guys probably all knew each other. Hello, Australian. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So that was great. But in any case, I so been looking forward to this. I have so many questions, especially about some topics that Dr. Rossi touches on that I think will be very interesting for listeners to hear. So Dr. Rossi, thank you so much for being here. It's an absolute pleasure. I look forward to diving into all things gut health. And like you said, you know, my my role and, you know, my research background is very much about empowering people with the evidence and what people choose to do with that evidence, whether they want to go, you know, paleo or, you know, veg or, you know, omnivore, whatever they choose, I'm totally fine with. I just want people to make informed decisions at the end of the day. Yeah, that's what I love so, so much because I found in both camps, both the plant-based sphere and we can, you know, put definitions behind that. And also like in the carnivore world on the flip side, people can get really intense and think that they can only have this one food group. And I think it leads to a lot of issues, but then it's also confusing because some people do seemingly thrive on like 100% meat or 100% plants. So then it's just confusing. Yeah, absolutely. And we can probably touch on on why people may feel better, for example, when they cut out in the short term all plants. You know, that's something I certainly see in, in my clinical practice. People who've gone on these carnivore diets and, you know, they've cut out all the plants like, oh my God, I'm not bloated anymore. I don't, you know, it's not triggering any of my IBS symptoms. You know, this must be amazing for me. But then I, you know, get them to look at the, at the research, what happens in you know, 10 or so years time to these people who typically have completely cut out all sources of dietary fiber because fiber, which I think your audience will probably be aware of essentially is fuel for our gut microbiome. So if we don't have fiber, which essentially, you know, has to come from plants, it's, it's a backbone of all our plant-based foods, then actually you're starving a lot of your key anti-inflammatory microbiome, um, which is also linked to longevity. For people who do seem to experience anti-inflammatory benefits. Like people will go on carnivore and say that their health issues go away, their inflammation goes away. So what do you think is happening there? In terms of when they talk about, you know, the changes they've made, I think it's important that we look at what changes they've made for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, they've cut out ultra processed food and we know that actually ultra processed food is, is terrible for our health. And in fact, yeah, having some quality meat is going to be much better for our health than having all these ultra processed foods. So, you know, you can see some gains by cutting out, you know, a lot of these processed foods. And then the other thing can stem from the fact that, you know, when we eat eat dietary fiber, like I said, that fuels our gut microbiome. And they, our bacteria, when they will break down that fiber, they produce a range of really beneficial chemicals like these short chain fatty acids like butyrate and propionate, et cetera. But if you have a very sensitive intestinal lining, which you know is very common in like 30% of people, it could have happened because you had a, a virus or high dose antibiotics, or you've got IBS or another functional gut disorder, your, your nervous system in you that innovates and feeds into your gut it's hypersensitive. So when your gut bacteria produces actual quite beneficial chemicals and a little bit of gas, which is a natural byproduct of fiber fermentation, actually can trigger it and, and make and stimulate those nerves and make them feel not very, not very good. And in the short term, you know, those feelings can actually instigate like a very low grade level of inflammation. So then when people take them out, they go, oh my God, I feel great. But what people need to realize is that 
if they can slowly teach their gut to tolerate and be able to digest that fiber, actually the health gains far exceeds that of what they would feel like without any fiber in their diet. But they have to go through a bit of a a pushing period. So it's kind of I often use the analogy of like going to the gym, right? So, you know, when you first start to hit the gym, you know, it hurts, right? You're kind of like, oh God, my muscles are are really, you know, in pain a lot of the time. But actually we know the end goal is beneficial to be stronger, to be healthier, et cetera. So sometimes we actually celebrate that pain and we kind of push through it. Actually, if we think about teaching the gut to tolerate fiber, that is a very similar, you know, thing that we experience it. Yeah, for a lot of people who've got that sensitive gut, you need to just go slow, you know, teach your gut muscles. At the end of the day, your gastrointestinal sense is just big fat muscle. So you need to teach it to tolerate it. And then actually it builds up its strength. And, you know, by two to three months, you can tolerate so much more fiber and not just tolerate, but reap all of the health benefits that we see stem from things like those short chain fatty acids such as better mental health, better metabolic function, lower risk of heart disease, and obviously I could go, could go on with quite a long list uh, according to the science. What was your history with diet? What things had you tried historically and what led you to you know where you are today with everything? So I, um, I actually grew up on a farm in Australia. You know, good gut health was is very much inherent to my upbringing, you know, eating fresh fruit and veg, playing in the dirt, all that sort of stuff. But actually, it wasn't until I was in my final year studying nutrition and dietetics when I lost my grandma to bowel cancer. So I had a bit of a, I guess my first conscious account of the gut was really quite a negative one. And I was just like confused and like we hadn't learned that much about the gut at uni. And I was like, what's going on here? And then I graduated and started working both in the hospital setting as a dietitian with all different types of conditions, whether it was kidney disease, different cancers, mental health issues, weight management issues. But also I was very fortunate to be the nutritionist for the Australian Olympic synchronized swimming team. And what I found incredibly striking is despite people coming of clearly very different backgrounds, you know, hospital setting, elite athletes, they're all coming to me complaining of the gut. And that was 2010. And I was like, God, what is it about this organ? It's haunting me. So that's when I, I decided, you know what, I'm going to you know, sign away my early 20s to do a PhD in the area to look at whether we target the gut through the right nutrition, whether that can improve the health of not just you know, our gut symptoms, but actually systemically. So can it improve things like our kidney function? Can it improve things like our mental health? And it was, yeah, that PhD that transformed everything for me in terms of going, wow, you know what? The gut is something we should be celebrating, not feared. If we understand it and treat it right, it can be incredibly empowering. And that was, yeah, what led me to the UK. 2015, move over to work as a research fellow at King's College in London. So on the flip side of, you know, people who go carnivore, all meat-based, do you see people who go completely 100% plant-based and that's not sustainable? Absolutely. And I actually have a, a case study in, in my book, How to Eat More Plants, where, you know, this person who actually had a very healthy, I would say, fairly gut boosting diet, although she wasn't aware of it because it was very like traditional Mediterranean sort of diet where it wasn't just plants only, you know, I had fish and fermented dairy and pasta, all that sort of stuff. And she thought that going 100% plant-based, i.e. vegan, was going to be better for her health. So she's made the switch and, you know, I share about all the side effects she started to experience, breaking up the skin, putting on quite a lot of weight, feeling mentally quite down. And yeah, it, it highlighted that, you know what, veganism didn't suit her. And plus she probably didn't, didn't do it in an overly healthy way. Cause you know, we see all these like 
plant-based foods out there that are completely crappy and have got a whole lot of food additives in it. And actually some of our researcher Kings is investigating the safety of some of these food additives on on our uh, gut. So I think we need to be very cautious about some of these 100% plant-based kind of meat alternatives out there. So absolutely, I, I definitely actually don't advocate for most people that they go vegan for a health perspective. I mean, I understand animal cruelty, environmental, all those reasons why someone would want to go 100% plant-based. But again, I, I talk about it in the book that if, if someone wants to go 100% that actually probably need to take supplements because they're, they're going to miss out on some key nutrients that we know is fundamental for thriving, including things like omega-3, which we, we mainly get from our, um, our oily fish. And yes, you can get some plant-based sources, but it's not the right type of omega-3 that has that really significant impact on things like our mental health and our gut health. Yeah. See, and that's what I was saying in the beginning about being open to everything because I think people can get really intense with everything. I'm really interested in this idea about the gut adapting to different plants. And so I, I have two questions about it. One, you talk in, and it's probably going to run, because I read both of your books back to back and all my notes are like together. So I'm not sure what was from which book. Oh, which by the way, they came out pretty like back to back. Was that the plan all along to release them? pretty close together? Yeah. So not necessarily. The uh, first book, Love Your Gut, came out in the UK first and in some European countries. And then there was a bit of a delay with publication in the US. Yeah. And then the other one came out quite quickly after that. But um, I actually took, yeah, a good two years in between to write the second one. Um, I'm not a fan of publishing for the sake of it. So I wanted to make sure there was there was new science. So I waited for this quite landmark study to come out to highlight some of the key concepts in how to eat more plants. Which landmark study? Looking at the plant diversity. So the studies which shows that those who eat more different types of plants have better gut health, particularly 30 was the kind of the number they chose in the research study compared to those who eat the same 10 on repeat. And I think that was so fundamental because we always know, you know, that all the guidelines are always saying, have more fiber, have more fiber. But this new concept about plant diversity that we actually need to get all the super six in our diet to have optimal gut health is, is really the new science that stemmed from our understanding about our gut microbiota. Before that, we thought all fiber was the same. It didn't really matter the source. And now we appreciate that you know, there's close to 100 different types of fiber, plus all the phytochemicals, which are the beneficial plant chemicals. And it's really that that underpins one of, you know, the key concepts of what I call the diversity diet, which is not a strict diet at all, but it's just following these five key principles, which, you know, the science has backed to show that's the optimal way to really enhance our gut microbiome, which, you know, is what's been linked to mental health, skin health, hormonal health, and yeah, I could go on. So you mentioned in one of the books how there's over 300,000 different types of plants. I think that's what I wrote down. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm like looking at my notes. I'm like, that's a lot of plants. So my question there, okay, so that's a lot of plants. What is the argument from an evolutionary perspective that even though there is that many plants that we would need to eat that many plants? So like historically when we were evolving, how many different types of plants would we eat? And if we've never eaten these plants, why would we need to eat these plants? 
Yeah, look, I mean, the fact that there is over, you know, 300,000 edible plants available highlights that all different cultures have consumed them. And, you know, depends on where you live on the world, kind of depends on which of those 300,000 that you consumed and that, you know, we grew up on. And historically, absolutely, you know, our ancestors used to have so, so much variety and it was very seasonable, seasonal, but they did have, you know, close to, you know, 80 different types of plants potentially, you know, across the season, like that there was that diversity that they were having. And again, it depends on the region. So what was growing and being produced during those times. But the the thing that's quite scary is that from those, you know, 300,000, I think it's about 75% of the food we eat in the Western world comes from like four plant species and a couple of animals. Like we have narrowed it down so much. So I'm definitely not, you know, saying that we have to go back to, you know, having the 80 different types of of plants in one week or, you know, really going to different countries to have to get some exotic plant of some form. But we need to expand our diet beyond this kind of four that we're currently all consuming. And particularly based on the new science, which highlights that there are these six different plant-based food groups. I'm not going to put you on the spot and see if you've read the book correctly. Wait, 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 let me, can I try? Yeah, the super six. Grains, legumes, fruit, vegetables. Are herbs and spices one? Absolutely. One more to go. Can I have a hint? Nuts and... Oh, nuts and seeds. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. 
So there is these, you know, six different categories, which actually, nutritionally speaking, are all providing us with, you know, a array of different fibers. And then obviously, if we go into each of the, you know, subspecies within that, then you see, you know, there is the the tens of thousands of these phytochemicals. So they all very unique. So yeah, no, we we really have have narrowed things down. And as a result, the the science has shown that we've lost about 30% of our microbial diversity in our gut. So we've actually lost quite a lot of, you know, the skill set and the functionality. So yeah, you know, we, we have a long way to go, I guess, to try revamp that and, you know, focusing on each day, have you got something from the super six in your diet is a really great way to kind of start moving in that direction of re-diversifying your diet. So here's a huge question I have, which is, so you're talking about how you can teach yourself to slowly eat these different foods. Do those different foods require specific microbes? And if so, where are they? Like, do we all have them and they're dormant? Do we not have them? Are they on the actual food themselves? That is a brilliant question. And what is just so exciting about a gut microbiome is that they can actually learn to develop skill sets so we can actually teach them right so if we start to like consume for example seaweed and you know we don't historically we have not really consumed much seaweed actually a lot of the microbes in our gut can actually convert to digesting seaweed and then plus there's some other cool things that actually seaweed often contains some some dormant microbes on it so if you ingest them then you actually start to have more seaweed kind of growing microbes as well. So they've tested that in looking at fecal samples of people who don't normally have seaweed, get fed seaweed, and they they can see that their microbiome changes, not only the genes, so that the function and the ability to digest the seaweed, but also they get new microbes, which have been have come from the ocean. So yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing in terms of how our microbes can learn to digest new foods, as well as where we get these new microbes from. And one of the things you do in the book is you talk about, there's all these words, there's the microbiota, the microbiome, the metabolome. So maybe we can put some definitions behind that. But so out of all of the microbiome species, like what I just heard about how we can teach current ones, does that mean you don't actually need that many diversity of species because they can learn how to do things or... What's the the nuance there? Yeah, no. So you absolutely do want that diversity still because they can, like many can learn new skills, but often they need to be taught. So they actually can share genes with other microbes. Again, a really cool thing. So you do like the ultimate goal that we see is people with more different microbes in their gut have better overall gut health and therefore all of those health benefits attached to that. But I think the key premise is that there is, you know, millions of different types of metabolites that need to be metabolized and our microbes can learn a lot of them but still there are some that they can't learn because you know they're only bifidobacteria lactis and they don't have the learning ability for the gene of metabolizing quinoa's outer casing for example so we still want that diversity but it's it's exciting to know that we can teach our microbes to be able to tolerate collectively more different diverse fibers so is that horizontal gene transfer that I'll always see? I always see that phrase thrown around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Horizontal gene transfer. Look at that. You're all over it. I always see that everywhere. I, I hadn't really like thought about it, but 
that's super cool. They're very smart, right? That's why, you know, they can use that to to our disadvantage of, of things like, you know, if we overuse antibiotics, for example, antibiotic resistance, it can occur by that because they can share the, the resistant genes and stuff like that. So there's some negative effects to that, but there's also some very cool outcomes of, of, of that trait. And how do they actually talk to each other? Is that, I'm going to use another phrase, is that the quorum sensing? Like how? Do- Quorming sensing. Oh my God, I love it. Yes. Quorum sensing. What does that actually mean though? Like, do they... How do they do that? So it's a number of different mechanisms, but one is kind of like this electric signal, so to speak, where they can kind of translate messages to each other. Also, the types of metabolites they produce, like the chemicals that they like half break down can sign up, send messages to and from other types of microbes as well. So there's quite a few different mechanisms, which, yeah, is is something that we're learning more and more about because also I think one of the things you mentioned about the different definitions, so we've got our gut microbiota, and that is that collection of those, you know, trillions of microorganisms, which is mainly bacteria, but actually we also have the viral component in that, and we call that the virome. We have the mycobiome component of that, so mycobiome, and that's the fungal component. And they all have their own sort of talking systems, which we've only just started to uncover because most of the research has focused on the bacterial component of the gut microbiota and hasn't really tapped into the virome component or the mycobiome component. And then just to leave you with that other M word, the microbiome. So the micro, uh, sorry, the microbiota and the microbiome. So they're slightly different. It's just the ending. So microbiota is the actual community of, of those microorganisms and the microbiome, the own part highlights it's like the whole collection. So it's the, the microorganisms, but it's also the chemicals that they're producing. So it's just a kind of nomenclature thing, but for scientists, it means quite a lot because it highlights a difference in terms of the functionality and, and the outputs that the bacteria and the fungi, et cetera, produce. So when I said microbiome earlier, I meant microbiota. I knew I was going to get those messed up. <laughs> and one thing you talk about in your book, I've been seeing this more and more just in general talked about, which is the idea that maybe there isn't actually, at least not as binary as good and bad bacteria. Is there good and bad bacteria? Yeah, no, like, like you said, it's it's not a correct sort of concept. We know that, you know, out of... If we think of, you know, there being hundreds of of thousands of different bacteria, we know that, you know, maybe less than 1% of them are actually really bad. I mean, the same with viruses, right? Actually, a lot of viruses can be beneficial in terms of how they protect our body as part of that virome. But there are some really bad ones like COVID-19, for example. So the vast majority of of microorganisms, microorganisms are actually really potentially beneficial, but it's kind of like humans, right? If we are treated really badly, you know, we don't have anywhere safe to sleep, we're really hungry, then we can do bad things to other people to achieve that sort of safety and what what we want. And the same goes with microorganisms. If we don't look after that particular species and we don't feed it the type of food that it particularly likes, like maybe it's, you know, kiwi fruit liking bacteria, or maybe it's like oat liking bacteria. If you're not feeding it, then it can actually get quite angry and aggressive. And studies have shown that in, in animals anyway, that it can actually start to like eat away at your gut lining. So that, that mucus layer that occurs, that can kind of, you know, help buffer the immune system. So yeah, we, we absolutely know that most bacteria, most microorganisms in general, you know, if we look after them can, can be incredibly beneficial for us. That made me think of a few other things. So, so say somebody does have 
the one percent of the of the bad, or they have not the one percent, but they have their microbiota part of it is creating issues for them for whatever reason because their their balance is off and they don't have the diversity that they need. So people will go a lot of different routes. I mean, they'll go the starvation route with like going carnivore. They'll go the attacking route with like antimicrobials and things like that. Or I guess you could go just adding in the good. So when people have gut dysbiosis, where should they start? Especially if they do have an overgrowth of part of the microbiota that is not serving them at present. Yeah, that's a really good question. And it really would, I guess, depend on their symptoms. So if it was something like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, where essentially the microbes, so most of our microbes actually lives in the last 1.5 meters of our digestive system, and and our digestive system is actually nine meters long. But occasionally the microbes can call up a little bit higher into our small intestine. And that is what we call small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So in those scenarios, what we do in clinical practice is we do particularly put people on more restrictive diets to help kind of like to starve off those microbes that are crawled up that little bit higher. And in turn, after about eight weeks, we start to slowly systematically reintroduce. And that seems to to help and treat quite a lot of people with SIBO. But there are other conditions where actually, you know, their dysbiosis might be, you know, present in term or like presenting as like the the one that always gets the cold and flu, like they've got a really weak immune system, in which case actually focusing on getting in their 30 different plants a week and their super six each day actually is sufficient and probably is the most effective way to kind of rebalance that dysbiosis, that imbalance of, of those microorganisms. And then of course, in like a you know, a more extreme scenario. So have you heard of fecal? I'm sure you have fecal transplants. No, I would love to hear your thoughts on, because right now I think in the US, I don't know what it's approved for in the UK, but it's only for, I think, C. diff right here. I'm curious about the future of that. Yeah, no, it's, it's incredibly exciting. So similar to the US in, in the UK, fecal transplants. So essentially getting the stool from a healthy person and transplanting into someone with uh, a certain condition, it's only been approved. But, you know, it's been approved for a very long time in the UK for treating antibiotic-resistant C. difficile. So when they've got a very aggressive type of, of C. diff, where actually some people, you know, a lot of us have got C. diff in our gut, no issue. But when the C. diff overgrows and the balance is so out of whack that the C. diff is just being like, yeah, really dangerous and they don't respond to antibiotics. The success rate is like 97% or something impressive with, with fecal transplant. So it's actually a life-saving procedure. So that, you know, like I mentioned, it's been around for quite some time. And, and more recently, I'd say in the past probably five or so years, the research has really started to like take off and go, well, actually, if it works for that, could it not work for inflammatory bowel disease? Could it not work for irritable bowel syndrome? And what about arthritis? So at the moment, I would say the evidence for the condition that's looking most exciting is probably ulcerative colitis, which is a form of inflammatory bowel disease. There is actually quite a few studies out there which, yeah, do really excite me. But what they're finding, which, you know, makes total sense to me, is that the the donor and their diet is actually really important. So there's these super donors out there and it's only their poop that seems to be curing ulcerative colitis, which historically was like an incurable condition. So you don't want to just get poop samples essentially from any healthy person. They have to be like a super donor. So the researchers are now kind of 
profiling the super donors and like I'm just trying to understand what's in their gut microbiome that's so key. So yeah, I still I still wouldn't recommend anyone go to a private clinic for a fecal transplant. And sadly in, in London, there are loads of, of private clinics and, and they can do really dodgy things. And you know, we know through animal studies that you can transplant things like depression. And when people are donating stool samples, often they don't get asked about family history of mental health conditions and, and things like that. So you need to be quite careful about, you know, you might be curing something, but you could actually get something worse. You answered my question. I was literally going to ask the donor process, how do they do the screening? And in the beginning, when they first started doing this, well, I don't know how long they've been doing it. Were they doing any screening? Or were they just taking people that didn't have C. diff? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, historically, you know, in the hospital setting, so doing all like the general checks, you know, you don't ha- have like HIV and and those sorts of things that could be directly transferred and they knew about. But yeah, historically they weren't. And actually there was some case studies which was <laughs> published in a, in a journal. I shouldn't laugh, but it was just kind of made everyone go, oh gosh, we need to be really careful. And some people reported putting on like excessive amounts of weight after getting the C. diff therapy and and kind of then looking back at the donors and, and things like that. So they're now starting to be even, you know, within the health system where it's been approved, they're starting to be like, okay, we really need to vet our donors. There's a tangential question I had about that, which is our taste buds. You talk about the turnover rate of the taste buds in your book. So how much of that is informed by the microbiota or by what we're eating? Do some people have an inherent desire for certain foods that's ingrained in their taste buds or is it all just based on their environment like their microbiome and yeah really cool question so yeah like as I talk about in the book I I find this the whole area of, of taste so exciting and empowering because the research really does show that you can essentially teach yourself to like pretty much anything because you know one of the things I often get in clinic is people go okay I get it I want to feed my microbiome like I get plants are healthy but I just don't like the taste and there's yeah there's kind of the, the two different elements to that one is well actually most people don't prep plants in a delicious way and I feel like you know adding a bit of extra virgin olive oil and some rosemary and roasting veg can like transform them make them crispy and all that sort of stuff you can make veg super tasty which is half of half of the um how to eat more plants book is kind of the practical tips of you know making it really enjoyable but the second part of that is about training your taste buds so like a I, uh, or you alluded to is our taste buds turn over every 10 or so days. And yes, there's some genetic components in there where we are predisposed. And if we go back even, um, even earlier in our lifespan, actually there's some studies that suggest that the food our parents, our mum eats in utero actually can dictate our taste preferences once we're born. So that, you know, there is a lot to, to say for, for things like, you know, the environmental component, but you know, there's going to be a little bit of genetics at play as well. But because our taste buds are constantly turning over, we can reteach kind of the sensitivity to certain types of flavors and sweetnesses and salt and stuff like that. And, you know, the the food industry is a great example where they've actually taken out, you know, tens and tens of tons of salt in in some of like our basic foods, like, you know, cereals. Not that I'm recommending we should be having them, but they have taken them out slowly over the years, like so much salt. And we haven't, consumers haven't even noticed because they did it using the science. And that's like slow, gradual reductions in salt. And, you know, our taste buds become more salt sensitive. But in terms of plants, so 
you know, the mechanisms we think actually, like you again alluded to, it could involve our oral microbiome. So, yes, we've got that mi- the gut microbiome, we have a vaginal microbiome, we've got an oral microbiome. So that's just little niche communities in the different parts of our body. The oral microbiome is actually really important in in taste perception and certainly does also change, you know, when we do change our diet as well, the types of microbes that kind of prefer to reside in our in our mouth. So we do think it's kind of dual functionality in terms of the taste buds regenerate and we start to make the, the receptors in our in our mouth kind of more sensitive to that, but also the microbiome changing and therefore the chemicals that they start to produce change as well, which changes like our pleasure function and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, the moral of the of that ramble <laughs> essentially is that you know we can change, we can you know train our microbiome to our, our our taste buds to enjoy pretty much everything. And if you think you know as kids, you know coffee, wine, dark chocolate, I hated, but now I'm like, oh my god, I can't live without them. And again, that's just you know training your your, your taste buds over time. Yeah, I am fascinated by the oral microbiome. I've actually, I had on a company called Bristle. I think they're probably just in the US, but they um, actually do oral microbiome testing and they're super cool and really deep into the science. I was going to ask you actually earlier about the SIBO. I saw a study, I don't know, it might've been about a year ago. It was actually proposing that SIBO might be caused by not so much bacteria migrating up from the large intestine, but actually down from the oral microbiome. Have you have you seen that? So yeah, I mean, I, I would say it probably is more like the bacteria have migrated up from the small from the large intestine because that's where the bulk is. But I think you know that research is suggesting our oral microbiome actually acts as like this bodyguard to our the rest of our body essentially. So if it doesn't protect us right, then it can let some of the bad guys into our intestine, which then can wreak havoc lower down. And there's this thing called the ileocecal valve, which is like this little trap door that kind of separates the large intestine and the small intestine. And certain bacteria can kind of like aggravate that. And if it flicks open, then that can make those bacteria lower down the colon, kind of crawl up higher. So it very much is all connected. So yeah, I definitely do see the the research coming out around how, how the oral microbiome is kind of that gateway and is incredibly important for predicting kind of what goes on and who lives in the, in the lower part of our intestine. So I had my own experience. I got food poisoning like back in 2014. It was a while ago, but I had diarrhea for like a week and then I got a colonoscopy and that sort of cleared everything out. But then ever since then, oh, and then I did rifaximin, which is one of the go-to antibiotics for SIBO. That was the beginning of my digestive woes. I went through an obsessive period with the ileocecal valve because there's all this stuff online about it's stuck open or it's, you know, it's closed and like you have to do this massage. And I would like, I I was like convinced. I was like, this is all the valve. I I don't know. Especially because I have like a weird feeling right where it is supposed to be. Do you ever do stuff like, like there's like these massage things online where they'll say you can like open or close it manually. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I'm convinced you could, you can open and close it that kind of easily via you know pushing and prodding in certain places but we do know that things like bowel massage and and that's in in the first book love you got which is really helpful for people with constipation i loved that section (laughs) 
Yeah. So doing that, that bowel massage actually has shown to significantly help with constipation. And if you kind of relieve that constipation, then that is more likely to shut that, that valve because the pressure when you're constipated can build up and pops it open. And that's why, you know, if you do have a history of constipation, that's been associated with increased risk of things like SIBO because it kind of makes that trapdoor not very effective. So indirectly it can it can shut it and close it but I wouldn't say you can kind of you know press a button on your gut and then it opens and closes I don't know maybe in the future we'll we'll find out more of a technique or get some sort of like magnet thing inside us that can make that happen but I don't know friends you guys know I love wine do you love wine I've done a lot of research on wine and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the U.S. is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives, dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. So you talk a lot in the book about the movement of the intestines and, you know, in the small intestine and large intestine and, and what activates that. And you say that fat and carbs stimulate that movement, not so much protein. And I was wondering why specifically those different macronutrients would do that. Yeah, look, I love the the functionality and the physiology of the gut. It's just so exciting. And I think we're so fixated on what we put into our body. But once we swallow, we've actually got no idea what happens to our food. So I find this, you know, part of the gut really exciting. So there's two key movements to keep in mind. So we've got this migrating motor complex. So essentially after we've we've been fasted for 90 minutes, that's when that mi- that migrating motor complex kind of kicks in. And that kind of comes from like your stomach and goes through your small intestine, kind of cleans your intestine, like pushes things down a little bit. So that can be really helpful to get activated for people who struggle with constipation, can kind of get, move food down to the large intestine. And that occurs, like I said, after about 90 minutes of fasting. So I'm usually like totally fine with people snacking, but if people struggle with constipation, one of the strategies I do try for about two or so weeks is to reduce the snacking. So they have at least those 19 minute windows or, you know, even longer than that to ensure that migrating motor complex has time to kind of kick in to kind of sweep the food down. And then the second one is the mass movement. So this is the one that's kind of that final kick in our intestine. So through the, the large intestine. And this is the one that kind of gets activated when we have the fat and and the fiber. 
And in terms of the physiological kind of mechanism around that, it's there's this gastrocolic reflex, right? So when we eat food in our stomach, what that does is like actually pushes, like sends messages via the nervous system to lower down our intestine into the large intestine and say, look, I've just got a new meal coming in my stomach. We need to make room. So it like kicks the food and pushes it out. And what seems to kick on that is, is the fat and the protein. And I don't know if there's some... Or the fat and the carbs. Sorry, yeah, the, not the protein, you're right. The fat and the uh, fiber. So, yeah, the carbs. I mean, car, uh, fiber is type of carbs. So I don't know the mechanism, like the the kind of historical reason why that would have happened in terms of evolution, in terms of why protein, it didn't doesn't do it as much for protein. But, yeah, it, it's what they found. They infuse people and they look at how powerful that gastrocolic reflex is. I'm just thinking about it more like why that would be. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it is very fascinating. And, and again, that, I guess, to translate that into like the practical side of things, that's why, again, if people are struggling with things like constipation, I do recommend for their breakfast that you do have something with fat and, and fiber in it. So it could be something like with oats and life yogurt, for example, it's a really great combination to get the fiber and the fats in it to help with that mass movement kick, which is already typically elevated in the morning. And that's why most people do actually poop in the morning because of that mass movement activity is elevated then. I love the section you have on leaky gut. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about leaky gut, because I think when we think leaky gut, everybody thinks they have it and they think it's bad, but you provide a much more nuanced perspective of the concept of leaky gut. So what is happening with leaky gut? Yeah. So if you think about our intestinal lining, it kind of shuts off the bad stuff that our body doesn't want to get from our gut into our blood system. So it's kind of got this really smart system. You know, I often say it's kind of like we've got these little bodyguards in our gut lining, which says, no, you're not allowed in the club and others that are allowed in the club, like nutrients allowed in the club, et cetera. So in terms of this concept of leaky gut, it's when the bodyguards aren't doing their jobs, they're actually letting things into our body that they shouldn't. And the scientific word is gut permeability. So our gut's more permeable. And we actually measure this. We've got a clinical trial at King's at the moment where we measure gut permeability, i.e. gut leakiness. And we do it through these different sugars and we measure how much sugar comes through their urine and stuff like that. And what we know about gut leakiness is that actually it's not like this black and white thing. Like we actually from day to day all get a bit of a leaky gut. So if we are stressed, our gut becomes more permeable, so the bodyguards don't work as well. Alcohol, high-fat meals, they all cause, in the short term, leaky gut. But the And that's, you know, completely fine if it's only short term, like our body's built to like have the immune system to be able to fight off any sort of little sneaky things to get across in the short term. But if we constantly have a leaky gut, we, we can obviously get more systemic ongoing inflammation. But the thing about the leaky gut we're discovering is that it's more of a, a symptom that something else is going on. Like I said, it's either like the stress or the alcohol that's causing it. And similarly, the longer term things is like, if you've got celiac disease, it's the gluten that's causing the leaky gut. So you take out the gluten out of your diet and by about a year, people with celiac disease who are gluten-free no longer have a leaky gut. And the same with things like inflammatory bowel disease, that's uh, what we've got a clinical trial on, that they, again, when they're going in through their inflamed state, they have a leaky gut, but when their immune system cuts that inflammation, then the leaky gut goes away. So leaky gut is very much a, a symptom and not a condition so far in terms of our scientific understanding. 
that barrier with the gut that does become leaky, is it a knowledgeable barrier? Like, is it like a sieve that just lets things in or out? Or does it, is it actually scanning and deciding whether or not to let things in and out? Yeah. So, so normally it's very intelligent in terms of like, you know, it screens everything that lets in. When it becomes leaky, then it, it's not very good. It lets things sneak through that it shouldn't. Okay. The exercise making it leaky and alcohol, is that because we're stressed and it's like a diversion of priorities or energy? Or is it actually functional? Like, does exercise making it leaky, does that have a purpose? Interesting about the purpose. No, I think it it probably relates more to the fact that, like you said, our blood system's kind of diverted to our muscles and therefore it's not innovating the gut and some of them don't have enough oxygen, therefore they don't do their job very well. In terms of the exercise thing, I think it's so important to highlight that obviously exercise is so beneficial. And in terms of the leaky gut, it it's worse kind of if you have like really long marathons and that's why you might see some people who who start to poo blood etc after after marathons because they've just pushed their gut so much drawn away all that blood so you know a little bit of gut leakiness in terms of if you go for you know a big hit session hour or whatever is in terms of the negative effect is negligible compared to the benefits of actually exercising. So I don't want people to kind of fear that and go, oh my God, no, I'm making my gut leaky because absolutely go for exercise. But it just highlights it's a very transient thing and we shouldn't kind of be as fearful as I think social media would want us to be. Okay. And I'm super glad you brought up gluten. So I've had a really interesting, I don't know, evolutionary like process and thoughts about gluten, which is when I first discovered the concept of gluten, I was all about how awful it is. Everybody needs to be gluten-free and it's the worst thing ever. And I was very narrow-minded in my perspective of it. I've been reading more and more. I still feel like, I don't know, because I've seen studies where, you know, gluten creates intestinal permeability issues regardless of if people have celiac or not. And granted, that's often in vitro. And I do think there's an issue with like pesticides associated with gluten and grains in the US. But stepping back, because I read a lot of more plant-based books and had a lot of guests on the show, and they'll often make the case about the benefits of grains and how it, you know, correlates to health issues or health benefits. And so I did an exercise, an experiment. I think this was before maybe interviewing might have been Simon Hill or maybe Dr. Neil Bernard, but I went into Google Scholar and I tried to just be like as unbiased as possible. I was like, don't be biased. Pretend that you don't know anything about grains or gluten and try to research grains and see what comes up. And honestly, the majority of the studies with grains were correlating it to health benefits. And it was really interesting experience. And you talk a lot about grains in the book and you even have a section on all of these different like heirloom grains and, you know, cool grains people can try. But that was a long windy way of getting to the question, which is what are your thoughts on gluten and grains and should we be gluten-free? Should we eat more grains? Yeah, look, I totally understand where your confusion has come from because it, you know, it, the, this kind of people out there who often call themselves or they are, you know, medical doctors, you know, are spouting stuff saying that it's like this evil toxin. And like, no matter how educated someone is, if they're constantly exposed to that sort of like negative press and they start to believe it and and then, you know, they they have something with gluten in it and they start to feel sick and, and that's a nocebo effect. We see it all the time in our clinical trials. So I absolutely think that we as a population eat too much gluten. Now, it's not because 
gluten's bad. It's just because we eat too much wheat at the expense of all of the other hundreds of types of grains out there. And therefore we're not getting that grain diversity and we're not exposing ourselves to all of these amazing phytochemicals that we could potentially be getting from, from whole grains. So do I think we're eating too much gluten? Yes. But do I think it's the fact that gluten on its own is bad? No, it's more of like the indirect effect that's bad is we're not getting much diversity in. And I think it's really important when we actually look at gluten, it's it's a type of protein. And like you, you highlighted, you know, the studies where it's showing that it's bad in people without celiac disease or in those with non-celiac gluten sensitivity, i.e. gluten intolerances. So you take those people out and, you know, those studies that are suggesting it's still bad for people, like you said, they're based on test tube studies or animal studies. And we know that the vast majority of, of like, Uh, animal studies actually don't ever translate to humans because our immune system or the antibodies are so, so different from animals and as well as the in vitro setting. So it's really difficult to extrapolate that out. So where I take my evidence from is always looking at human studies, right? So human intervention studies where they've given people gluten, they've given people gluten-containing whole grains, And they've shown actual health gains, not when they've given it gluten on their own, but they've shown that actually gut symptoms don't necessarily stem from gluten. It's more of the fructan component. So people kind of just felt normal when they had the gluten bars that kind of were blinded versus having a fructan, which is kind of a different story. But in terms of the whole grains, when they actually gave people whole grains as an intervention, and yes, it did contain gluten in it, but also contained loads of fiber and other stuff. You know, they reduce their heart disease risk. They, you know, reduce their blood pressure medication requirements, reverse their type 2 diabetes and stuff like that. So I kind of find it really difficult to understand that if gluten was bad as a toxin, how people could be experiencing these health benefits when they're actually administering this in their body. So, yeah, I I think we just need to be really careful about where we get our evidence in terms of animal in vitro versus actual human clinical trials. And and I always look for, has there been a human clinical trial showing this? And if there has, I'm like, okay, now I'm really interested. If it's kind of in the in vitro setting and the animal studies, fine. If it's a really new and novel concept, it needs time to progress. But, you know, we've known about gluten for a very long time that still hasn't progressed into any sort of clinical trial that I'm aware of outside of obviously celiacs and those with gluten intolerance. So I'm kind of like, hmm, I don't think it's correct what people are saying that it's this evil toxin. I don't know if we're talking about the same study, but I was reading one of the ones that was looking at, I think it was like they gave them bars with different levels of gluten and fructans. What was interesting about the study, and this is why I think it gets even more confusing, I'd have to revisit it, but I think like the conclusion they made was that it, it might be the fructans, not so much the gluten that was causing the issue in people. But then if you actually looked at the breakdown of how people reacted, it was like some people were reacting more to fructans and some were reacting more to gluten. And so I just think it's so it's so complicated and people are so individual and it's hard to even know sometimes what the studies are showing cuz like I think the conclusion of the studies often will not necessarily reflect the you know, the breakdown of the actual data. So I just think it's confusing for people. Yeah, no, no, I totally get it. My, my colleagues actually did that study. It was really great. And I think, like you've said, they took people who believed that they had non, they had a gluten intolerance, right? And they wanted to show that actually the majority 
of them didn't react to gluten when they were blinded. They actually were reacting to another component of wheat called fructans, and that's one of the FODMAPs, and I kind of go into more detail about FODMAPs in the book. But we do know that actually there is a percentage of people who have non-celiac gluten sensitivity, i.e. gluten intolerance, and that's what I cover in Love Your Gut is actually how to how you would diagnose gluten intolerance and you can do it at home it, it goes through this like step of you firstly have to three r process and this is how it's like the the gold standard for identifying a food intolerance because annoyingly very annoyingly there is no blood test no urine or hair test that can test for an intolerance outside of lactose intolerance so milk sugar intolerance there is test for that but all the others you have to go through this process so it's called the three r process so you would record your symptoms and what you eat you would then if you see an association with the specific food or a category like gluten, you would then restrict it for two or so weeks. If you see an improvement, you then really importantly have to do this blinded systematic reintroduction. So you've probably seen it in the book where I actually go through that diagram, right, of showing you what dose to reintroduce the gluten at and get someone to blind you to it and, and follow the, the pathway. And it gives you quite clear insight to actually, is it really gluten or could it be another component that may be triggering gut symptoms? And when I do that with a lot of my patients and clients, actually majority of them find it's not gluten that they're reacting to. Similar to the, the clinical trial, actually most people, it's the, it's the fructans and it kind of feeds back into fructans, actually a prebiotic, so they're good for the gut bacteria. It's kind of the whole gym analogy. You want to train your gut to be able to tolerate more and more fructans. But in the short term, if you've got a sensitive gut and you throw fructans at it, similar like the inulin category, you're going to get bloated. You're going to feel like terrible, but it's that slow, steady increment because, yeah, it, it's a prebiotic that so feeds your gut microbiome, fertilizes them, and has an array of health benefits. I loved that part of the book because it's very comforting for people with gut issues and provides a plan that you can actually follow. And I just think it's so, so helpful for people. And then what I love is you said, you know, say that you do do this whole process and you realize that you weren't having the issue that you thought you did. Even that is good because now you have more knowledge about, you know, what works for you and what doesn't. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it should be, you know, a celebration, not a negative finding, right? It's a celebration that, hell yeah, now I can eat some sourdough and not be convincing myself that actually that's causing my issues. And in turn, I'm, I'm feeding my gut microbiome those sorts of fibers and, and polyphenols. So yeah, no, I always I always believe that even those kind of null findings actually, because it can broaden your diet, is a real benefit. So I actually, I got so excited though. So I was gluten-free for I mean, it's still gluten-free, but I was gluten-free just based on the concept of gluten for a long time. And then I actually got a, a blood test and I actually, I do have a wheat allergy, which granted that doesn't mean it's necessarily gluten, but it felt good. I was like, I was like, okay. <laughs> I was like, yes, finally validated those symptoms. I can, I can actually stick to this. I know. And I think that's what's really exciting about, I guess, where the science is at with gut issues. So this category of functional gut disorders, which essentially is what the first book goes through, you know, it, we now understand and validate those experiences. Whereas like historically, so many of my clients, you know, would come back and to me and say, my doctors told me it's all in my head and, and I don't really have, you know, these symptoms. And, and now we're like, but look, we actually do, it's called functional gut disorders and there's room criteria for it and you get diagnoses for it and we know how to treat in certain ways and stuff like that. So it is a really empowering space that people who've been suffering for so long can get a diagnosis and can understand that, yeah, it's not just in their head, so to speak. 
Well, then also what's a little bit disheartening for people, at least I thought this was this was disheartening when I first heard about it. I was like, okay, so they're saying it's all just me being oversensitive, which was visceral hypersensitivity. Like basically the idea that people with IBS are just more sensitive. But there is a mechanism behind it. So we literally have these like hundreds of millions of nerves, part of the enteric nervous system that f- go from our brain to feed our gut. That these nerve endings, like, and if you've got a nerve ending like free in your tooth, it absolutely kills. Like it's can cause you so much pain. So, you know, there really is a physiological function behind visceral hypersensitivity. So it's not that you're just sensitive, your enteric nervous system is kind of more on fire, which can, you know, result in excruciating pain for a lot of people. So, you know, there's a mechanism there. Don't you worry. Hi friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold control. Contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit. 
but sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. Although that was interesting. I didn't realize until I read your book that the definition of IBS, I think it does require pain. Because for me, I don't have actual pain. I just have like bloating and motility, like constipation, diarrhea type issues. So does that mean I don't have IBS? You don't fulfill the criteria for for IBS. I was like, what? (laughs) Damn it! But I think this is helpful because so long we've been like lumping all these different types of functional gut disorders into the one IBS. And that's made research really hard because we recruit people with IBS, but actually they don't really have IBS. They've got all these other things going on. And therefore the results don't really, you know, become very clear because we're treating different types of conditions and we're trying to put this like one name on it. So yeah, it sounds like you might have more of like functional altered bowel habits or functional bloating, or I mean, you've probably read the book in terms of looking at bile acid malabsorption and stuff like that, which is actually really common in people who don't actually get pain, but have like altered stools and can get quite bad diarrhea and stuff like that. So yeah, I think it's really important that we are starting to like actually narrow down the criteria. So for IBS, yeah, it's you have to have stomach pain at least one day a week. And that pain needs to be associated with your stool habits in some way, whether it gets worse when you poop or better when you poop. And that kind of experience of that, that once a week, at least once a week pain needs to have occurred for at least 12 months. It can't just be like, you know, a short term two two month sort of thing in order to get that IBS diagnosis. I mean, that really blew my mind because I've been like reading about IBS for like a decade. And then I read your book. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. No, no, no. But to be fair, to be fair to you, it has, the criteria has changed. So the room criteria, we're now to room four. So when we were at like room two, it was more of gut discomfort rather than pain, but they've, they've made it more specific. So they do update. So you were, you were right a couple of years ago, but you've just missed the update. <laughs> well, good thing I read your book. Um, just some questions about the food that you actually talk about, because you have a point system in your book that people can follow. How do people follow that? And then I just have like a really specific question about it. Yeah, look, I came up with this this system based on that research that I mentioned about the 30 different types of of plants a week, which came out of uh, Rob Knight's group in the US, was really landmark highlighting about, you know, those who ate 30 plants a week had better gut health than those who had the same 10. So I thought, look, how can I translate? Because, you know, as well as working at King's, I'm I'm a clinician. I have a the gut health clinic in the UK. And I was thinking, you know, how will my my clients, my patients kind of relate to this. So I came up with this system because, you know, everyone loves counting numbers. You know, people like the whole calories thing, which, you know, is not backed by science, kind of people get on board with it. So I, yeah, I came up with this plant point system where each different type of plant gets one point and herbs and spices only get a quarter of a point, same with coffee. So if you eat 20 strawberries across a week, you'll only get one point. Whereas if you eat five strawberries, one banana, blueberries, blackberries, and some apples, you're going to get, what? how many is that? Is that five points? <laughs> you're going to get five points. And it really just gets you thinking about this concept of diversity. Because remember, each different plant contains the different profile. And I have in, in the book, the image of the apple, 
and highlight the apple's got over 300 different plant chemicals in it, just like this boring, humble apple. And, you know, it's got things like dopamine in it, which is like a feel-good hormone. It's got things like incitol, which we know is actually really beneficial for a PCOS. And there's just so much within, you know, this apple that so many of us snub and like, oh, that's just a boring apple. And yeah, it just kind of helps people think that of that target of getting of at least 30 points per week in their diet. That was mind-blowing reading about the apple and like the bacteria that are on it. And and you talk about how like the imperfect produce likely just might be better. Yeah, absolutely. Because they're produced through like trying to protect, to protect the fruit and the veg, right? So yeah, they actually have been shown to contain more having kind of the, the malformed and kind of the bruised plant. So yeah, again, in the recipes, I advocate for people, you know, to use the bruised ones to not chuck it out. Obviously it saves money, saves the environment, but also it might even be more nutritious for you. My random question, because you have herbs and spices. So like when, like when I eat cilantro, like I eat a ton of it, like a ton of it, like I'll eat it like spinach. So if that's the case, can I make it one point because it's Yes, I will grant you that will be an exclusive just for you. No. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. So when I was thinking through the system, yeah, it was very much like, you know, if people are going to have more than like 15 grams of a of a herb, then yeah, like absolutely. Like the basil, I eat the same. Like you can count that as a whole point because it actually is not just providing the, the phytochemicals, but it's also providing the fiber. Whereas if you're having just like, one gram of cinnamon, like there's no fiber in it. So that's kind of how I came up with kind of justifying the system. And then what about on the flip side? Say you do a spice blend that has like 30 spices in it. Does that ramp up your... Yeah. Look, the next thing people ask me is... I bet you get asked this a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's like, well, what about if I have like one pumpkin seed? Is that going to count as a point? And you know what? I mean, it's very much about getting people in the mindset of thinking diversity. If people want to kind of, you know, cheat the system and have one pumpkin seed and count, I'm like, you know what? You do you. But what I notice ends up happening, because obviously, you know, I've I've observed, you know, hundreds of clients who, who followed the system and, you know, if you're having like a tablespoon of mixed seeds on your breakfast cereal, yes, that one portion might only contain like three grams of pumpkin seeds. But actually, if you add that up, most people have like five days a week, you know, that's going to reach like the 15 grams. So actually across that week of hitting that target, the pumpkin seeds will, you know, count up to, you know, a whole point, so to speak. So I don't get people to fixate on portion sizes straight up that's kind of the second step. And then I I talk to them and there's images in the book about tons, like what would be classified as one portion of veg or what's classified as one portion of nuts. And, you know, when people are more, you know, confident with the whole like initial getting in diversity, that's kind of like at the forefront of their habits. Then we start to think, okay, well, I want to make sure I'm actually having a decent portion of each one. So for the herbs and spices, yeah, typically each herbs and spice gets the quarter of a point. But if, you know, a dish has got like 15 different types of herbs and spices, I just say, you know, be realistic, maybe give it an extra three points or something. Don't take the piss. You have a very long section on herbs and spices and it's fascinating, like the different ways they can either literally have hormones in them. Those hormones, when it's literally the hormones like melatonin, is it the exact same as we would produce endogenously? Like, does our body know the difference between endogenous and exogenous 
hormones? Yeah. So, so no, but some of the metabolism, so when it goes through like the gastric at the really low pH, it can, for some of them, change the structure of them. But in terms of things like the melatonin, they've showed that like eating really large amounts of pistachios, which is one of the highest nuts in melatonin actually can impact your blood levels of melatonin. So for some of them, Yes, it it can have that same effect. And although structurally it could be identical for others, when it goes through that digestive system, it can be changed and therefore the functionality of it might not be the same as in vitro uh, in, in the stuff we produce ourselves. That was actually another major reframe I had in addition to the grains, because I was always very much on the anti-soy train. And that actually kind of relates though to the gluten where I think it might be like glyphosate and stuff surrounding it that might be the issue. I think that's it, yeah. And so like with soy, it might be like the process form and the GMOs. But I interviewed Dr. Neil Bernard for his book. At the time, it was his most recent book. He has a lot of books. Some people just love to publish, don't they? No, he came on just for a study he had done, actually. He wanted to come on for just a study about soy and all that. That actually made me do a, a big reframe on soy and phytoestrogens, just because I think I was a little bit biased in my approach to that. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. I think it can be, like I said at the start, in terms of the gluten thing, we can be easily biased by like so much bad press around stuff, right? And I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of often it's probably something else. It could be the pesticides that are having these effects. Because when we look at kind of the clean version in in clinical trials, like the the phytoestrogens, we see how it has like, you know, these really impressive like anti-cancer effects. And also we know that how, yeah, animals metabolize these phytoestrogens is very different to to how uh, humans and that's the whole breast cancer thing initially was was that you obviously would have covered this, I think, with with the, the world leading expert on the topic. But yeah, how like, you know, it completely had the opposite effect in rats compared to how it does in humans where it benefits us and it was really quite harmful for them in terms of breast cancer risk so it's so understandable where all these confusion comes from right so end of the day I'm always like has there been that human clinical intervention if there hasn't been I'm a little bit skeptical don't write it off but a little bit more skeptical if there has then I'm like okay now I'm listening now I'm going to really check through the mechanisms And sort of to bring everything full circle from the beginning, I think the same thing happens a lot with meat and even dairy, where I think a lot of it is the context of being processed meat or the people who are eating meat, like healthy user bias. So, you know, the people that are eating meat tend to maybe have, you know, less healthy habits. So, yeah, I just, I think it's a paradigm that is very present in food. Absolutely. I mean, and we're such complex humans, aren't we? There's just so much going on behind not just what we eat, but how we eat and why we eat and all that sort of stuff that which really makes like epidemiology trying to pull apart, you know, is it the salt? Is it the potassium? Is it the gluten? Is it the pesticides? Really difficult. And again, that's why like the observational studies where they observe cohorts is really interesting. But again, we need to be careful of what we deduce from those sorts of studies. We want to make sure we get that intervention where everyone's on the same playing ground. Half of them get this intervention, half of them get that. And that's when it becomes like a lot less bias and we get that clear understanding of, of what's most likely to happen. So I want to be really respectful of your time, especially with you being in the UK with all the time difference. So I will refer listeners to your books because there's so much information, recipes, lots of troubleshooting, just really valuable information for people. One last food question about your diet. Did you consider at all or what would be your thoughts on having wine as a plant food? 
<laughs> I love that. And I did consider it because we know that things like cocoa and coffee actually are beneficial and I've given them a quarter of a point. I didn't give the red wine the quarter of a point, uh, unfortunately, because, you know, we could probably just have berries and get a similar effect. And I just know that red wine, although it has health benefits, you know, one glass a day, absolutely, because those polyphenols actually have these like anti-inflammatory and they feed a lot of the mechanisms of how these polyphenols have benefits actually is via our gut microbiome, hence why we we need them for, for another thing, the benefit of red wine. But actually when we have more than the one glass, those anti-inflammatory benefits start to turn to pro-inflammatory. So it just would have created a whole new level of uh, explaining. So I've stuck to food sort of compounds in this scenario. Makes sense. I was super curious about that. Well, thank you, Megan. This has been absolutely so, so incredible. Was there anything else that you wanted to draw attention to from your books or things that listeners should know? about your work. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Clearly we could, we could chat all day. And I guess, you know, a lot of people ask me, so which which book should I buy? And I I generally love your gut was very much about helping people get on top of their digestive issues and some of the very fundamentals of our gut microbiome. So, you know, where they've got food intolerances, you know, reflux, excess flatulence, bloating, those sorts of things that kind of goes through and, and very practical kind of troubleshoots how to overcome them. And it was because essentially, you know, I couldn't see everyone in my clinical practice. I know it's it's not realistic to see a one-on-one dietitian or nutritionist. So that was kind of like a very action plan type book. And then after that book was published, I was like, never writing again. It's such an intense journey. But I just got so many requests from people like, oh my God, you know, amazing results. Now I feel like really good. But I've heard that like our gut is connected to our metabolism and our gut hormone and our gut skin. Like how do I make the most of this? So I was like, oh, you know, really there is a second book there in terms of kind of broadening out and speaking to essentially everyone and anyone about the importance of systemic, the far-reaching benefits of, of your gut microbiome. And even those people who, who might still find they've got a bit of a sensitive gut, I've got like a sensitive gut menu plan in the second book that allows them still to get their 30 plus points a week and, and loads of fiber in a very kind of gentle way on the gut using specific fibers and stuff like that. So it's kind of more of that broad-based book and the other one's a little bit more clinical. I'm always bringing on different guests onto this show and they often have multiple books. So I always start with whatever book was presented to me or the book that I you know, read. And so in this situation, it was your publicist had sent How to Eat More Plants and it was so good. I was like, I got to read, <laughs> love your gut. So that's how you know when you're like, must read all the things. So I can definitely 100% recommend this to listeners. And I, I'm just so grateful for everything that you're doing. And the last question and it relates to that, that I ask every single guest on this show. And it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is, which is something you talk about all throughout your books. But what is something that you're grateful for? I am grateful. It's going to sound super nerdy, but for my gut microbiome. Oh, I love it. I love it. (laughs) It's just like, it it sounds, yeah, it sounds so nerdy, but like when you work on it day to day and you see the research coming through, it highlights like so much. So we thought our human cells did on our own, like, you know, regulating things like estrogen and fertility, all of that sort of stuff. Actually, we're discovering our microbiome is doing so much for that and we, we couldn't survive without them. So yeah, those little guys inside of me, I am very grateful grateful for. And that's why I guess, you know, I do practice what I preach and making sure I have my 30 plus plants a week and and load up on the the diverse fibers. I love it. That's a 
Wonderful answer. Well, thank you, Dr. Rossi. This has been absolutely amazing. I just thoroughly enjoyed your books. I enjoyed this conversation so much. I can't wait to see your future work. I I know you just said how crazy it is writing books, but are you writing another one? (laughs) No, I can confirm. I have, I, there is a few studies and I'm like, I definitely haven't finished, but there's a few studies that I want to see which way they turn before I feel confident in writing anymore. Oh, that's a teaser. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. Cause I mean, I just don't want to like write something and then be like, oh gosh, no, it's changed like ridiculously. And there's some landmarks that is kind of on the verge. So yeah, this whole word of personalized gut microbiome and nutrition is is really exciting. So I'm going to, I'm going to wait and see what comes from the research. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We'll put links to everything in the show notes and what links would you like to put out there? So social media at the gut health doctor. And then there's also a website for a whole lot of free resources, theguthealthdoctor.com. Awesome. Well, we'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you again so much for your time, especially with the time difference. I appreciate everything you're doing so much and hopefully we can connect again in the future. Absolutely. I I really enjoyed it. You're very knowledgeable, which was, you know, great, great to have a chat with. Oh, thank you. You too, obviously. (laughs) So thank you. Have a good day or night. (laughs) Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.